Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be in verses 11 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Father, it is your voice that we long to hear through your Son, Jesus, by your Spirit's inspiration in your word. We pray that you would you know, push aside all other voices, all other ideas, all other claims to truth, but your word. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would teach us great things about your love for us, great things about the worth of your son Jesus, great things about his glory, that you would give to each of us this morning a deeper motivation than the motivation this world offers us, that you would compel us by the fear of Christ and the love of Christ and the glory of Christ, that you would give strength to those who are weak, that you would give wakefulness to those who are sleepy, that you would give encouragement to those who are discouraged, that you would give passion to those who are lethargic, that you would give greater love in our hearts where we are loveless. And in this Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, if we put diesel fuel in a sort of common unleaded gasoline engine, the vehicle might run for a few miles. If you've ever made that mistake, you've learned it may run for a few miles till all that unleaded gasoline is sort of run through the engine and that diesel fuel starts to get into the engine and then the whole thing completely shuts down because diesel fuel can't power regular gasoline engines. Though the fuels are sort of similar in appearance, they may even smell a little bit alike. You can get them at the same gas stations. They actually bear distinct physical properties and they combust for very different reasons in very different ways. I think something similar can be said about motivation in the Christian life. That a heart that is regenerated by the grace of God in Christ, a heart that is filled by the Spirit of God, a heart that is united to Jesus, runs on a specific kind of fuel. And the longer you try to motivate yourself in life, to compel your faithfulness to God, your obedience to God with the wrong kind of fuel the more you will find that following Jesus is a terrible chore. And the idea of enjoying Christ will become more and more an elusive dream that Scripture often, in no uncertain terms, asks us, what motivates you? What fuels you? What gets us going each day? Why, if we could ask, are you here this morning? Why am I here? Why did you get out of bed? Why did you take a shower and get dressed and eat and load up the car and go through all that trouble to make your way here? Why sing? Why serve? Why share Christ with others? Why pray? Why abstain from sexual immorality? Why be honest in your business? Why be honest in your taxes? Why enter into marriage? Why stay in marriage? Why bear children? Why raise children? Why? 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 It's the question of motivation. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ really cares about our answers to those questions. Not just what we do, but why we do it. I've even argued that the Lord Jesus lived and died and was raised to save us from our sin, to bear away the wrath of God, to provide a way of salvation in order to completely change all of our answers to all of those questions. To transform the reason for everything you think, everything you feel, everything you do. We could even say that the gospel of Jesus Christ, for those who repent and believe, creates a kind of motivation in the human heart that is completely distinctive from everything in the world. The way God is trying to motivate us is very, very different than the way the world will try to motivate you. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15 is about. The essence of motivation in the Christian life. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we were of right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And the Corinthian church really needed to hear this. We really need to hear this repeatedly. But according to 1 Corinthians 1, they were motivated by arrogant loyalty to their preferred sort of celebrity teachers. According to 1 Corinthians 2, they were impressed by lofty human wisdom. According to 1 Corinthians 3, they were motivated by winning arguments and jealousy. According to 1 Corinthians 4, they were motivated by power and the desire to be in charge. According to 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, they were motivated by fleshly desires. They really loved physical pleasure. According to the rest of the letter, they were motivated by money. They were motivated by self-interest, by impressing one another with all their spiritual gifts. According to 2 Corinthians 1 through 4, this letter, they did not want to be too distinctive from the world. So they were sort of still motivated by fitting in with the world. They wanted to be attractive to the world. They were drawn to false teachers who removed the offense of the cross, who allowed them to be Christians but not suffer as Christians to feel good about their faith without having to be rejected for their faith, to always be relevant to the world, to achieve right standing before God without losing good standing with people. So by the time we get to 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul's ready to explain to them and to us that the true apostles and those representing the true apostles were not motivated by those things and that no Christian should be. So Paul is going to model for us how you can't mix two kinds of fuel in the Christian life. We can't mix that old motivation, the fear and praise of man compelling us to seek our own glory with our new motivation, the fear and love of Christ that compels us to seek his glory, that the gospel is moving us from the old to the new. 
The fear of Christ, verse 11. The love of Christ, verse 14. The glory of Christ, verse 15. It's the essence of our motivation as Christians. It's going to be the three points we're going to draw from this passage, beginning with the fear of Christ. Because whether we've realized it by now or not, we each entered this world motivated by the fear of people, wanting to please people, not displease people, wanting to be accepted by people, not rejected by people, want to be liked by people, not disliked by people, wanting to fit in, not be mocked or mistreated, which is why Paul's going to say in verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The Lord had helped Paul to realize who and what deserved his fear, his awe, his reverence, and that no human in all the world deserves your fear or your reverence or your awe, only God. And he has in mind the previous verse, verse 10, where he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due. And he knows, okay, Christ is is Lord, Christ is master, Christ is king, and the day is fast approaching when we're all going to have to stand before him and give an account. And at that time, no other opinion will matter. Christ has purchased us with his blood, and we're going to face him. We're going to see him. We're going to see the holes in his hands. We're going to see the holes in his feet. We're going to see the hole in his side. We're going to appear before him as a lamb who was slain. Knowing those wounds purchased our salvation. My redemption cost his life, his body, his blood. Paul is not here afraid of being condemned. He's not afraid of being cast out. He's not afraid of damnation. He's secure in the Lord. He's afraid of squandering grace. He's afraid of living a life that is self-interested and displeasing to this one who purchased him. That's what he says in verse 9, make it our aim to be pleasing to him. So that's going to produce in Paul the fear of the Lord, a healthy reverence for Jesus Christ, who he knows sees the heart, not just the outside performance, not just the external stuff, but what fuels it. What motivates it? Paul, notice the word, knows this fear. It's personal to him. It's weighty to him. It compels him. It moves him. It captivates him in a very personal way to honor Christ, who weighs, he knows, not merely his works, but his motivations. And so I want to ask, do you know this fear? When you're sitting there alone in the quietness of your mind, thinking about how to use your time, thinking about what to look at on the internet, thinking about how to respond to a brother or sister in Christ, thinking about what to do next, thinking about how to live life. In fact, Paul's efforts, he says, to persuade others, to call others to repent and trust Christ, all his evangelism, his discipleship, his ministry, is not compelled by impressing people, not compelled by winning their approval, but a holy fear of Christ. Just the way fire will purify water. You get a pot of water and you bring it to boil with heat underneath it, it purifies it. 
That's the effect the fear of Christ is meant to have on his people. It purifies the heart. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Think about that. What a statement. What we are is known to God. He sees us. He sees our hearts. He hears what we think when nobody else hears. He knows our motives. And that's not intended to produce shame or guilt or hiding from God. But just humble, brutal honesty with God. Why hide from God? If he sees everything. He hears everything. It's a reason to be honest with what's really in it. It's a reason to depend upon him for everything. And Paul knows that God knows that their intentions in ministering to the Corinthians are pure. What Paul wants is for the Corinthians to see it. I just want you to see what God sees in us. You to hear what God hears in us, that our love for you is genuine. Our care for you is sincere. All the ministry that we're doing in you as a church is from pure intentions. We're not trying to manipulate or scheme or deceive. He wants them to see it. Verse 12, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. In other words, we're not trying to reintroduce ourselves to you and reconvince you of our faithfulness to you. Rather, we're wanting to equip you with words and ideas to do battle against these false teachers that are trying to disparage our ministry in you as a church. We want to equip you with an answer for them who boast in outward appearances, who boast in flashy styles, that you would not be seduced by that. But you would have a reason to boast, and this isn't boast in an evil way, but boast in a good way, that our ministry to you is sincere and godly. We want to equip you to answer these false teachers and leaders who boast in the smoothness of their speech, who boast in their attractiveness to the world. And this is one of the reasons why Paul's writing this entire letter. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. So Paul appeals to the fact that our motives toward you are pure, are sincere, simplicity and godly sincerity, not flashy, fake, externally seductive presentation that is just meant to captivate your flesh and yet starve your soul. By the grace of God, he says, not by human cunning or craft. According to 2 Corinthians 10.10, these Sort of unnamed opponents were saying this about Paul. They're saying his, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Like, yeah, Paul, he writes well, but have you looked at him? Oof, he's kind of short. His hair is not, he is not stylish. His face, he's not attractive. His clothes are way out of date. 
when he talks, it doesn't have the sophistication, the impressive sort of grammar that the, all the philosophers of our day and in our city do. I mean, come on. This can't be for real. But look at us. We look impressive. We sound impressive. We can make you feel culturally relevant and attractive to the world and not feel stupid and silly the way Paul will make you feel. And so the church was in danger of being seduced by them. And Paul wanted to help them think biblically about their leaders, biblically about leadership, biblically about what a healthy church is. Oh, do we need this today? The church is so easily deceived by appearances, always has been. So easily deceived by slick presentation. So easily deceived by sort of all the things that appeal to the flesh. So easily drawn into discontentment, into grumbling, into suspicions when their leaders even don't fit a certain profile. When their brothers or sisters in Christ don't look a certain way. We're so easily embarrassed, in other words, of being Christians. Embarrassed of Christ and what he sounds like in the world. Embarrassed of what the church looks like and how the world talks about her. And Paul's saying, don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed of me or the testimony of our Lord. What we must learn, especially every leader in the church, is how to be motivated by the fear of Christ and not the fear of men. What we must also learn is how to be drawn to leaders who are motivated by the fear of Christ rather than the fear of men. In other words, if your pastors and elders are easily moved by Twitter feeds, even easily moved by temper tantrums of others, easily moved by worldly appetites, by threats and manipulations, we're in trouble. And it won't take long before we shipwreck this church and do great harm to your souls. Nothing is better for us as a church than leaders and elders and pastors who fear God above everything, who fear Christ above anyone, who see that day coming and do everything they do now because that day's coming. I'm going to have to give an account for him. It helps me sometimes to imagine in my mind that, that someday the Lord's going to take me home. I'm going to die and, and get there. And as a pastor, as an elder, I think he'll probably stop me at the front. Say, all right, we're going to wait here. I'm like, okay, wait for what? We're going to wait for all, all your sheep to get here that you are responsible for. I just want to see how they look. And in that moment, what are all those hours going to be like? Is it going to be with godliness and godly sincerity and faithfulness and humble heart and pure intentions and fear of the Lord? Again, not to produce shame and guilt, but to rightly order what I do today. If we look good to your flesh, but do not fear the Lord or revere his word, then great will be our shame when Christ appears. You talk about cancel culture. Everybody's so afraid of getting canceled today. I mean, we're going to show up before God and everybody's going to be silent. Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.20, let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. Before judgment day, there's going to be 30 minutes of silence in the universe. You know what that's going to sound like? 30 minutes of dead silence, not a bird chirping, not the sound of water, not the sound of wind, not a single voice, just 30 minutes waiting for the judge to take his seat. 
And oh, what will fill our thoughts in those moments? Well, Paul is trying to fill our thoughts right now with that moment. And let that motivate you. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. In other words, if we seem crazy to you, which some of the Corinthians were suggesting, it's because we preach the gospel without apology, which sounds like madness to the world. And if we seem sensible and right-minded to you, which we are, then it's because we're serving to you the sober truth of the gospel. In Acts 26, 24, if you remember where Paul is standing before Festus on trial, and Festus is going to accuse Paul of being out of his mind. Paul's declaring the gospel to him, and Festus is like, Paul, you have lost your mind. To which Paul replies, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Same thing here with the Corinthians. We're not out of our mind, as some of you claim. We're speaking true, rational, Christ-centered words. So by God's grace that we need to never let any human courtroom capture the motives of our hearts. Fear of what we'll sound like before human judges. Fear of how we'll appear in newspapers. Fear of what the population will think. That is, again, we know it, slowly always going to lose its mind. In the last days, men will grow from bad to worse. So the more we trim our sails to culture, the more we'll drift onto the rocks of gospellessness. And Paul says, yeah, we're motivated by deeper things. Only reverence for Christ. But then that's not all. Verse 14, also the love of Christ is motivating him. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And in these words, we get the deepest, greatest, most lasting motivation that we could ever know in the Christian life the love of Christ. And if you spend the rest of your days just studying carefully, thinking deeply about the love of Christ for you, then you've spent your life well. And it will compel you in all kinds of new ways. And in context, we understand this to be Christ's love for Paul, not Paul's love for Christ. And that love with which Christ loves Paul is the same love with which he loves us. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, God loved us and chose us and adopted us in Christ. You didn't earn this love. You can't lose this love. Christ loves you because it pleases him to love you. Christ loves you because he delights in loving you. And his love is warm, not cold. It's near, not distant. It's personal, not impersonal. It calls you by name. A love that numbers the hairs of your head. His love is steadfast for you, not wavering. It's gracious, not dependent upon your spiritual performance. It's persevering, never to expire. It's based on his character, not your character. It's lavish, not stingy. It's free, not begrudging. It's sacrificial, not manipulative. It's redemptive. It's forgiving. It's securing. It's deep. It's everlasting. And the rest of our lives could be spent studying and learning and dwelling upon the love of God in Christ Jesus without ever exhausting the depths of it. This is why Paul prayed what he prayed in Ephesians 3 that we read earlier. That we would have strength 
to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul's like, I have to pray that the Spirit would give us strength to get it, strength to grasp it, strength to know a love that surpasses knowledge. That's beyond what we can comprehend in our own strength. Beyond the vocabulary that we would have in our own strength. In other words, his love is so magnificent, so great, that we need the Holy Spirit to help us comprehend it. And to spend the rest of our lives comprehending it more deeply. And spend the rest of our lives learning it more intimately. So that it would control us more fully. Because before Christ intervened, we were hostile to God, alienated from God, rebellious against God, suspicious of God, irreverent toward God. And yet, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The body of Jesus crucified in our place while we were still running full steam after our sin. The blood of Christ spilled for our forgiveness while we were at our worst. The justice of God satisfied so that by grace we could be adopted as his children while we didn't have a clue what was going on. Paul's like, while we were at our worst, while we were sinners, while we were alienated, while we were far away, God gave his son to die for us. And in doing so, reconcile us back to himself. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 1 John 3.1 This can happen because the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. This can happen because he gave his life for our salvation. This can happen because in love Jesus set aside his own preferences and interests and laid down his life for us. That love, Paul says, controls us. It compels our devotion. It constrains our rebellion. It just takes over. A great general and leader once said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men and women would die for him. Napoleon Bonaparte. He said, people do what I tell them to because I'll kill them if they don't. Jesus gave his life 1,500 years ago, and there's millions of people in this world that would gladly die for him. It blew his mind. Like, what is this love that so captivates a people? The love of Christ controls us, and it does so through a conclusion. One has died for all, therefore all have died. For all who the Spirit joins to Christ, his death counts as their death. Therefore, all who are in him have died, verse 14. Died to sin, died to the law, to be new creations. 
Paul says to the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if you're in Christ, you can say the same thing. That Christ has given his life for you. He loved you, gave himself up for you, and now you live in him. Jesus loves you and keeps interceding for you. When you sin, he still loves you. When you suffer, he draws near to you and cares for you. When trials come, he's loving you. When he disciplines you, he's loving you. When he gives you gifts, he's loving you. When he takes them away, he's loving you. When he builds you up, he's loving you. When he's humbling you, he's loving you. Everything that happens in your life, he's loving you. No matter what he gives, no matter what he takes, no matter what he raises down, up, no matter what he puts down, no matter what he brings to you, what he takes away, no matter what it is, all the time, always, he's loving you. All your life is meant to be interpreted through that lens. This is the love of Christ for me, whatever it is. Not interpret his love through the lens of your circumstances, which is what we usually do. Look how awful my circumstances are, Christ must not love me. Look at what I've lost, Christ might not love me. No, Paul's saying, no, you reverse that. Interpret all of life through this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So why get up in the morning? Well, because he loves you. Why get dressed and eat breakfast and come here? Well, because he loves you. Why sing? Because he loves you. Why pray? Because he loves you. Why work hard at your job? Because he loves you. Why obey your parents? Because he loves you. Why care for your children? Because he loves you. Why live out your singleness for the glory of God? Because he loves you. Why live out your marriage for the glory of God? Because he loves you. Why do anything? Why think? Why feel? Because he loves you. Paul's saying this is the core of our motivation now. Not so that he will love me, but because he loves me. Not so that he will accept me. No, because he has accepted me. Not so that he will redeem me. No, because he has redeemed me. The gospel orders all of that for us. So why endure affliction with joy? Why not look at porn? Why not gossip? Why not be anxious? Why not quarrel with others? Well, because he loves you. That's why. Therefore, be imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1. As beloved children. How many of us forget to read those last three words? Therefore, be imitators of God. All right, here I go. And we forget. No, as beloved children, that roots what you're about to do, compels what you're about to do. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Notice the motivation. Imitate God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us. So do you want to imitate God? then remember who you are, beloved child. Do you want to walk in love? Then think deeply and feel strongly about Christ's love for you. Do you want to help others imitate God, help others walk in love? Then remind them often of Christ's love for them. I mean, think about how many of us try to motivate other people through manipulation, motivate other people through threats, motivate other people through praise, Rather than motivate them through the love of Christ. So here's your exercise today. After service, we're going to find one or two people that you know and just walk up to them and say something like this, okay, I've seen you in action and you're not impressive. 
in fact, you're pretty lame. But you know what? God loves you. Christ loves you more than you can imagine. His love for you is steadfast. His love for you is redemptive. His love for you will never waver. It will get you home. And I love you. That's more like how the Bible talks to us. God says, I've seen you. It's not great. But I love you. I'm redeeming you. I'm doing something in you. I'm transforming you. I'm bringing you home. We have to remind one another of those things. Paul prayed that we would all comprehend this love. Do you pray to comprehend it? Or are you too busy complaining about things? Do you pray for others to comprehend it? Or are you too busy judging them, criticizing them? Let us pray to be controlled by his love. The fear of Christ, the love of Christ, powerful fuel for the Christian life. We should leave room for nothing else. Except one more thing, which is our third point. The glory of Christ. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Notice the power of the gospel. We have died in Christ not to be dead, but that we may truly live. The passions of our flesh, dead. Passions for Christ, alive. The love of this world, dead. The love of Christ, alive. The love of our own image and self-interest, dead. The love of Christ and his people and his church, alive. We look at his death and resurrection And our redemption as the reason to no longer live for ourselves, but to him. That is to live for his honor, to live for his display, to live for the world to see his beauty, to live for the world to see his worth, to live for others to treasure him, to live for him to be magnified, to live that he would be exalted in first place in our hearts and in everybody else's heart to live that his fame would be spread in the world, which each passing day we behold the glory of Christ in Scripture and we want others to see that glory in Scripture. And we all do this already. It's like if we see some great highlight of some great play in some game and we get it on our phone, we go to other people and say, hey, check this out. Some great clip from a movie. Hey, "Hey, you go to watch this. We go to museums and we look at stuff on walls. And we marvel at it. We tell people all the time, oh, you've got to go hike this trail. It's amazing. You've got to go look at this mountain. You've got to go see this ravine. You've got to go see this waterfall. Well, how much more should that be our words about Jesus? Hey, you've got to check this guy out. You've got to check out what he's done. Oh, by the way, he made all this stuff. I'm showing you on my phone. He made all these things that we're walking around. He created all this, let alone what he accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. We easily lapse into motivations far less worthy. Our names, our reputations, our successes, our accomplishments, our trophies, our legacies. And they drive us and compel us miserably until they don't anymore. And God will make sure at some point in your life they don't work anymore. That those things no longer give you fuel to get up in the morning. 
But when the Spirit unites us to Christ through faith, he instilled in us a far greater desire, a far greater motivation, the exaltation and magnification of Jesus Christ. And that's the motivation we need to feed. That's the motivation we go to the Word to feed. That's the motivation we pray that the Spirit would feed in us. That's the motivation we're trying to stir up in one another, to no longer live for ourselves, but for him. And so think, when you argue with your spouse, is it for the glory of Christ? When you're angry with your children, is it motivated by the glory of Christ? When you get frustrated at work, is it for the sake of Christ's name? Are you anxious for the glory of Christ or mostly for your own preservation? Are you worried about the glory of Christ or merely the safety of your loved ones? How would I answer these questions? I think I'd have to say, well, depends on the hour, on the moment, which is why I need 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15, to keep humbling me, to keep convicting me, to keep reminding me of what life is about, to keep bringing me back to the fuel that is meant to motivate me and compel me and control me, to keep warning me about all the other motives that happen in the world that are going to be seducing me, to make me alert to all those other motivations that rise up in me that are far less worthy. Because how do we argue with our spouse for the glory of Christ? How do we serve our own interests for the glory of Christ? It's amazing how much freer life becomes, how much less easily angered we become when it's all about the glory of Jesus. In writing to this same church, the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's a radical statement. Whether you eat or drink, oh yeah, and in everything else, do it all to the glory of God. That every single thing we ever think, every single thing we ever feel, every single thing we ever do should have as its aim the exaltation of Christ, the display of his beauty. Should be an expression of our awe and our worship toward God. So we eat for the glory of Christ. We drink for the honor of Christ. We sleep for the exaltation of Christ. Sex and marriage for the glory of Christ. Work at our jobs for the glory of Christ. Sing for the glory of Christ. Pray for the glory of Christ. Serve for the glory of Christ. We do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Just imagine living every minute of every day under that truth. My body, it's not my own. It's been bought with a price. It's not my personal amusement park. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not purchased for me to now go on and serve all my own interests, but it's been purchased by his blood to serve his interests. What is the chief end of man? The Westminster Catechism asks. First question. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You may have come and to recognize this morning that you don't know this fear of Christ. You don't know this love of Christ. 
You don't know this glory of Christ that Scripture proclaims. And I would say praise God because you're in the right place, the right time. And I would encourage you to let the fear of Christ compel you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Pray even now that that fear of Christ would compel you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Let the love of Christ draw you away from your love of this world to accept his offering of salvation. That fear of Christ is like this fire, again, that's meant to purify us. That love of Christ, it's like a 90-mile-an-hour wind that is at our back as we run. It compels us. Let the glory of Christ capture your heart, that you would no longer boast in your own accomplishments or seek after your own achievements, but in his death upon a cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You would boast in that. Boast in his resurrection as your reason for life. His resurrection as your right standing before God. Because the day is fast approaching when we will all stand before him. And nothing will matter less on that day than the size of your house, than the brand of car that you drive, than your GPA. It will matter, nothing will matter less than the quality of the clothes that you wear, your work title, your internet speed, the quality of your vacations, the size of your retirement fund, the number of your Twitter followers, the sort of pithiness of your Facebook posts. None of that will matter. In fact, most of it could be used to indict us. So it's kind of the last thing we want brought up on that last day. Are you in Christ? It's the only thing that will matter. Do you know the fear of the Lord? That will matter. Does the love of Christ control you? That's going to matter. Did Christ die for you? And so moved by that fact, did you expend the rest of your days on this earth for the glory of his name? That'll matter. And so, brothers and sisters, does your faith feel sludgy? That's the best word I could think of. Sometimes faith feels sludgy, feels hard, feels difficult. Then pray to know this fear of Christ. Go to the word that, that God would stir in you this fear of Christ. Gaze upon him through the revelation of Scripture. Learn reverence and awe for Christ. Put to death all that reverence and awe for people. Just pray that God would purge it from your life. Does your energy for Christ seem to be waxing and waning? Or just gets harder and harder to follow him? Then pray to comprehend the love of Christ. Pray to be controlled by the love of Christ. Gaze upon this same word of God. See in scripture his love for you. Trusting, knowing that that love is compelling. That the spirit uses that love to move us. Gaze upon his mercy and grace. His sacrifice for your redemption. To be controlled by his love for you and nothing else. I mean, think about how much time we spend thinking about all kinds of things not to do with our redemption not to do with the love of Christ for us. And no wonder at times we feel so lethargic. That's part of Paul's point. But when we think deeply and carefully and grow in our understanding of the love of Christ for us, that does something in us. That changes us. 
That moves us and controls us. Because he loves me as the completion of the sentence, not so that he will love me. If you seem to struggle with a reason for living, then pray to see the value and glory of Christ. Pray that God would give you eyes to see it, a heart to comprehend it. Because, yeah, the beauty of Christ, God thinks at least, is the most magnetic force in the universe. If the love of Christ is that wind that is driving us, well, the glory of Christ is that magnet that's pulling us. And before our redemption, that magnet repelled us. But when he turned us the right way, now that magnet draws us. His glory draws us close. And so help us, Lord, see his glory. That's our prayer. Help us see your glory in the creation. Help us see your glory in the church. Help us see your glory upon the pages of Scripture. And with that glory, compel us. We don't arrive at this overnight. We sanctify slowly. By God's grace, we learn to slowly purge the fuel of fleshly, worldly motivation in order to be more and more filled with this new kind of fuel, the fear of Christ, the love of Christ, the glory of Christ. And those motivations, those will compel us to depths of joy, depths of hope, depths of love, depths of faith that we could never imagine. Let's go to him now in prayer. Well, Father, we do pray that you would do this work in us. We do pray, even as we heard testified by Emily this morning, how you pursued her, you loved her, you redeemed her, you forgave her, you've stood with her, you've drawn near to her, and her boast is the cross and nothing else. Her boast is Christ and no one else. And so, Father, we pray that you would instill in us a deep reverence and awe for your Son, the Lord Jesus, that you would help us to comprehend the height and depth and length of the love that you've poured out upon us through Christ, that you would help us to behold the glory of the Lord in the pages of Scripture, and through that glory that you would transform us from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's fitting that we respond in singing. All we have is Christ. So let's stand now together and sing.